this is Circumcessions. You're all very welcome to another episode of the podcast series here. I'm sorry we had a bit of a hiatus for a while as there were exam and paper deadlines looming, but we're back. We've got a number of exciting episodes to bring to you over the next uh, number of weeks now with uh, some very interesting and groundbreaking interviewees. I would like to introduce this week Miss Mary Claire Ferrugia. Uh, Mary Claire completed her training in paediatric surgery and thereafter undertook a two year UK National Training Fellowship in Paediatric Urology. She has trained in leading centres including Great Ormond Street Hospital, King's College, St George's Hospital and the Oxford Radcliffe. She has a research interest in fetal and perinatal urinary tract abnormalities and completed a research MD on fetal bladder outlet obstruction at the University of London. She was awarded the American Academy of Pediatrics Travelling Fellowship to Boston Children's Hospital and the Johns Hopkins Hospital in Baltimore for her research work on the obstructive megaureter. She published a national consensus statement on this condition on behalf of the British Association of Pediatric Urologists. She is amongst the first robotic pediatric surgeons in the UK and is currently the service lead for pediatric surgery across Chelsea and Westminster and Imperial College Hospitals. She is also an assistant editor for the Journal of Pediatric Urology and an international executive committee member for the Society of Fetal Urology. And when not at work, she is likely to be found in a CrossFit box. Marie-Claire, thank you so much for joining us on the uh, on the show today. And I guess the, the first question is, you know, what was your journey into pediatric surgery? And you know, was that always going to be your final, your final end game? Or, or did you have any other initial career aspirations? Well, first of all, hello, and thank you so much for having me today. It's a great honour. Well, my first career aspiration was to become a fashion designer, but being born in Malta in a rock in the middle of nowhere in the 80s, I soon enough realised I wasn't going to go very far as a fashion designer and then decided to go into medicine. I think I always wanted to work with children, um, but I clearly remember starting medical school and just falling in love with surgery straight away and wanting to do surgery, which was a challenge at the time because um, surgery in Malta at the time was a man's world. And I'm proud to say I'm the first female from Malta to have become a consultant surgeon. So that was a successful endeavor. Wow. Um, I would say by my final year, I had decided to take on pediatric surgery, which wasn't a specialty I could train in in Malta. So um, I was given Prof Piero's and Professor Spitz's names. Um, this was obviously before emails and WhatsApps. <laughs> so I think I wrote them a letter or something of the sort and I managed to get to Great Ormond Street um, as an observer while I was a junior doctor in Malta. And basically the rest is history. I spent a couple of weeks in Great Ormond Street. Um, I seemed to impress them. They offered me a job as an SHO and I moved to London with a six-month job in January 2001, and then just carried on from there. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> oh, my gosh. And, and you've skyrocketed since then. It's It's been incredible. Um, um, wow. So I, I guess I'm going to move slightly away, I, I, and I know that, you know, you're, st- you're, you're still 
involved with doing some peed surgery. Uh, but what I want to try and focus on is the peed urology aspect of your job at the moment. And, you know, you, you are so eminently published at this stage, but you've, you've published several important papers on obstructive uropathies. Um, and I, I guess what I was interested in is how is our understanding of the etiology of some of these uh, uropathies, such as posterior urethral valves, changed over the last, say, 10, 15 years? Um, and, and I know this is a bit of a loaded question, but why do you think that the proportion of those progressing on to end-stage renal disease hasn't really changed? I know we, we had the pleasure of chatting to uh, Professor Macedo recently, who was you know talking about the interventions from large trials such as the moms over over in the US and saying that you know whilst it did have a number of very significant benefits in his findings it didn't really affect GU outcomes at all is that something you've been you found in your own research and and, and just talk to me a little bit about that well, I mean, following on from having started my training in Great Ormond Street Hospital, I was also offered um, two years of research there. So I was very lucky to work with amazing academics, who many of you may know. So Professor Adrian Wolf, Chris Fry, Maggie Godley, uh, under the supervision of Peter Kukau. And um, I ran a two-year fetal bladder outlet obstruction project on a fetal lamb model. Hmm. The interesting thing is in the fetal lamb, so we used an omega-shaped ring, which, which was the same in all the fetuses, so it caused a partial bladder outlet obstruction. And the amazing thing is that the same degree of obstruction at the same gestation for the same length of time will cause, will cause a complete spectrum of changes as we see in, in real valve boys. Mm-hmm. So in the kidney, you could go from having completely dilated distended glomerular cysts with medullary fibrosis, um, cortical cysts to an actually not very damaged kidney. The bladders went through complete, again, spectrum from being hypercontractile, thick-walled to very distended and acontractile. We even managed to perform telemetered urodynamics. So we had like telemetry probes with probe into the bladders, into the fetal bladders, and mm-hmm. we could actually see the urodynamics in utero. And again, the urodynamics were completely different as you would see in a boy with valves. So the answer to your question is every boy with valves is different. And I think just grouping them and getting an outcome on all of them is the reason why most of the studies more or less give the same the same figures. Interesting. So it's, it's... So having said that, mm-hmm. I think the figures are changing. So while I was training, and as you know, we've always quoted the Parkhouse Woodhouse paper from the 80s, which basically said that a third of them will have a normal renal function, a third of them will have impaired function, and a third of them will go into end-stage renal failure. Mm -hmm. That was 1988. There's been a couple of long-term outcome papers published in 2008, one from Leeds and one from Sarhan, which was joint uh, Paris and Egypt. Right. And their rates are actually very similar. They have something like 20 to 22% going into end-stage renal failure with a higher proportion of normal renal function, up to 60%. So that's already an improvement over 20 years. I couldn't find anything more recent with large numbers Mm. other than a study from the Texas Children in 2016. But their their long-term, it's very short-term follow-up of three years. They only had something like 10% and say adrenal failure in three, at three years. But what I'm getting at is there possibly is a minor difference, 
but I think it's because we're more active on, on bladder management. I, I don't really think we're ever going to succeed in preventing renal failure, basically. That's, that's really interesting. So, so even with the, the, the aggressive postnatal management that we institute now and, and, and the, you know, the surveillance that we, that we undertake, the effect isn't as large as one might expect it to be, given, given the technology that's, in, that's improved. And, and just, to, just, just to remind me now, when you say omega shape, you mean omega is in the Greek letter omega so it's it's pretty much nearly a full circle but just a little bit missing down the bottom just 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 to clarify that for anyone listening yeah. <laughs> perfect so that's that's really interesting so i mean you were also involved in a in a great paper which was an expert panel uh, discussion uh, where you discussed selection criteria and interventions for uh, fe- and this is kind of moving off from what you were saying a minute ago for fetal bladder outlet obstruction and 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 one of these you know one of the arms that in this particular study they were looking at uh, benefits of cystoscopy over uh, vescoamniotic shunts and those that were treated uh, antenatally, um, and I, I wonder if maybe you could comment on what you think that might that benefit might be from from actually introducing uh, something cystoscopically, and is the uh, LUTO or lower urinary tract obstruction classification system being used in the UK at the moment? Okay, so I think before we get into the benefits or otherwise of fetal cystoscopy, I think the first question to answer is, is there actually any benefit Mm -hmm. from fetal intervention and bladder outlet obstruction? The answer to that is, at the moment, we do not have clear evidence that it is of benefit. So I think you all know about the Pluto trial, amongst other good quality studies, Mm. but the only thing they all showed was that we're improving perinatal survival. Mm but not improving uh, long-term renal function. Mm -hmm. You're correct. There is one recent paper which suggests that fetal, uh, the meta-analysis, which suggests that fetal cystoscopy may um, result in a better renal outcome at six months to two years. Mm -hmm. But again, the numbers are small. They're from very expert centers. So I wouldn't just base intervention on that one paper. So then we come to then, is it actually worth intervening? It might be. And that's where the classification system comes in. So Ruano came up with this three or four stage classification system, which essentially, again, goes back to what I've said. Valve patients, fetal bladder outlet obstruction, there's such a wide spectrum. You can't just group them all into one. And I fear that some centers will just see some oligohydramnios and decide that that's the patient to shunt. But that's not the case. Um, we need to look at the kidney. So we all know that if you have good good cortex, n- no echogenicity, no yeah. cortical cysts, no oligohydramnios, mm-hmm. that fetus is going to do well. There's no point trying to intervene. Mm-hmm. If you already mm-hmm. have established anhydramnios, and there's a lot of evidence that if the anhydramnios comes off on early, at about 20 weeks, there's a much poorer outcome. Mm-hmm. So if you have oligohydramnios, renal cortical cysts, echogenicity, you could shunt them, but you're just getting possibly giving them a higher chance of survival without improving the quality of life. So there's a middle group, which is the Ruana stage two, mm. who are the patients with possibly a progressive hydroerythronephrosis, dropping amniotic fluid levels. Ideally, you see them drop, don't let them get to oligohydramnios. We don't want to try and save a baby who's already in established renal failure. I'm not going to go into the merits of fetal urinalysis. Some centers yes. do them, some centers don't. But again, mm-hmm. fetal urinalysis could give, you, could give you an idea whether this renal function is, is able to be preserved or has already gone. Yep. And that middle group is the group that may benefit from intervention. However, we don't have a good quality study based on the stage twos. 
And that's what Rodrigo Ruano is actually working on now. And I think he's trying to make this a multi-center study based on, on, on the stage twos, because those are the ones we may be able to, sal to salvage their renal function. So once we've decided who we're going to intervene on, then comes the technique. Um, so VAS, so vasacamniotic shunting, works. It's straightforward, but the shunts we have are still the same ones we've used from the 80s. They're very bulky. The fetus can pull them out. They get dislodged. They get blocked. Um, they're quite. If you see pictures of them, there's quite these big loops inside the small fetal bladder. And again, we have fetal lamb evidence that it can cause bladder fibrosis. So they're not ideal. So the best way forward is to probably modernize the shunting um, because that's a much more straightforward procedure that many centers can perform. And there's a group uh, led by Michael Kurtz in Boston that are actually developing a really new, very elegant shunt that could just be the right thing for us. Moving on to fetal cystoscopy, I've spoken to Rodrigo Ruano and other fetal medicine experts a number of times. Um, it's very difficult, it's very technically demanding, it's not just for anybody. So you're really cutting this technique down to very few centers where you have the expertise. Yep. Rodrigo says it's it's a little bit more straightforward if you have a flexible fetoscope, which not many centers have, and it's very difficult with a rigid fetoscope. There's been reports of fistulae, um, fistulae into the anus, fistulae into the skin and the babies. They appear to heal, but it, it can't be a pleasant thing for a parent to see when the baby's born. Yep. So, so although fetal cystoscopy is, is helpful in the way that it can, you can see what you're doing, so you can see that there's valves or an atresia, you, you know what you're doing, but it's very technically demanding, and I don't think it's going to be widespread anytime soon, especially without the evidence to support it. Well, I hadn't I hadn't known that about the the fistula formation. I mean, I suppose it makes sense. The tissues are so soft and delicate, but um, really? no, they often laser the valves. Mm -mm -mm. Hydroablate them, or some centers just put in kind of a JJ stent do, to it, yeah. to stent it. But um, the laser can cause yeah, wow. can have side effects. Wow! 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 Amazing. Um, and it's funny because, you know, a, a lot of the time we here we come again. And, and how many times have we had this conversation where what you're trying to do is improve the knowledge and the communication about the gray area? Because, you know, the, the, everyone kind of knows roughly what to do on the extremes. But but this this huge kind of 66, 67 percent in the middle where we're kind of like, oh, I'm not right sure what the right thing is to do. But that's really fascinating. I guess the other thing, just moving maybe slightly up the track a little bit, I guess, um, you you had set, you've set up a, a pediatric robotics program which you introduced in London, and I know there's been a lot of literature uh, that's been published on the benefits and drawbacks for pediatric urology in specific, and and much of this has really kind of focused on robotic assisted, uh, I suppose laparoscopic pyeloplasty. Um, I'm I'm really fascinated about how you went went about this in the first place. I mean, do I take it there, there was no robotics program before you set this up? So how on earth did you go about this? Um, first of all, it wasn't my merit at all. So I'm very <laughs> lucky to have got a consultant post in Chelsea and Westminster Hospital in 2011, which was already a very well established, minimally invasive center of excellence and. The clinical lead at the time, who's still working with us, is um, Munter Haddad, mm -hmm. who was always a visionary in minimally invasive surgery, and it was his dream to set up um, this robotic service. Mm -hmm. so, so the dream and the aspiration was already there 
before I started and I was probably gaining momentum as I started and those of you who know me well know like I like a challenge so there I was like trying to help out but the way it happened was obviously it couldn't be supported by the NHS I mean the we have the SI model which cost 1.5 million pounds at the time yes yes so before I started, Munther and his colleagues set up a, a charity called the Pluto Charity, and we still call the robot Pluto to this day. Um, about a third of the money came from very generous pharmaceutical donations. Um, about another third we did through um, charity events. So I used to organize a big Chelsea garden party every year. I'd make, I made about 40, 50K, which is drop in the ocean. Sure. But we all lent a hand and tried tried to get um, as much charity money as we could. We had events and all sorts. Um, one of my colleagues who sadly passed away last year ran the, ran the marathon for us and made a lot of money for the robot. Um, so it, we got money from all areas. And then there was still about a third to go, which eventually, after lots of business planning, uh, the trust supported the switch. So eventually we managed to get the robot. Um, and we've set it up running, uh, so myself and my two urology colleagues do the urology on it, and, mm-hmm. and obviously general surgeons use it as well. Um, it's still a financial challenge because obviously the instruments have lives, That's and right. it's a fact that each time we finish an instrument, whether we can afford to buy another one. <laughs> oh my goodness. So it's, it's still not easy, but so far, thanks to the trust, they have supported us, and we're still we're still going ahead. <laughs> That's the, I, I, I guess one of the questions I, I was going to ask is is how how you suppose in a way affect change and and bring your colleagues on side with you, and it sounds like you were saying that vision was 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 already was already there when you yeah. came in so i guess uh, certainly conceptually that made things a little bit easier uh which 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 was really beneficial i suppose because you weren't between us yeah. the enthusiasm was absolutely there like none of my colleagues said oh why are we doing this etc so we're uh-huh. on one team obviously the difficulty is um convincing the exec and the people who are going to pay for it yeah <laughs> niece tests who think we're going to be there day and night trying to operate robotically um so it's kind of the, the peripheral teams that need it i think they're all on board now we don't we're, we're getting much less challenge oh, indeed and, and are there any restrictions on what you can use it for or um you know once once the finances are in place you can you can kind of use it as you see fit I mean, in a way, we've created our own restrictions. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. We have an SI model with five millimeter instruments, and five millimeter instruments don't have a bipolar. So everything we do is with kind of just monopolar, which is a bit tricky. So it makes, for example, re-implants a little bit difficult, um, bladder surgery a bit difficult. We've done re-implants, so it's doable, but it would be better if we had um, eight millimeter instruments. Mm -hmm. Second, the second thing about it is that it would have probably bo- would would do much better financially had we invested in a robot with four arms and eight millimeter instruments because we could then share it with our adult um, oh, okay, 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 yeah. So, and that's where we're at the moment. So the next stage of the process is to maybe trade this one in for a newer model with another arm and eight millimeter instruments. Um, and then we'll be able to share it with them and possibly it will break even a bit better than if we just use it in peds. And, and I, I don't know the answer to this, but I, I guess having gone to the trouble of setting this up and creating a sustainable program now, I suppose if you if you change a robot, it's going to be another Da Vinci, is it? It'd be very difficult to try and change that model. I mean, at the moment, yes. 
you you're probably asking this question because you're aware that there's others being developed. I mean, I've only ever visited the Cambridge Medical Systems model, which um, is coming on. I don't think it's it's and it's not going to be licensed for children in a very long time. I think mm. they're still doing trials on adults at the moment, or at least that was pre-pandemic. So I'm sure they must have stopped during the pandemic. So it's still nowhere near, I think, being marketed for children. However, the benefit of the Cambridge model is that it's less bulky than the mm. Da Vinci's. Da Vinci's, as you all know, is like yeah. this big thing with lots of arms. And the Cambridge Medical System has um, co one column for the arm. So it's much easier to get into a lift, for example, if you wanted to take it from one theatre to the other. Um, so I, I quite like that. It's, it's a bit more compact. The other thing is that instead of being a console where you're just seeing what you're seeing yourself, yeah. um, it's a big screen. So all your staff, your your trainees, everyone can see what you're doing. But then the, um, the master controllers are much bigger. It's a bit like PlayStation-y. They're quite big and bulky. And if you're trying to operate in a small space, they clash a lot. So there's pros and cons. But I don't think it's ready. So I, we can't be investing in that one just yet. Perfect. Uh, and I guess from a, from a personal level, I mean, you know, how did you how did you go about training for for the, for the robot? I mean, did you have to go to to various? I mean, after you did the the basic training with Intuitive, I mean, did you have to go visit a center and then have cases lined up, or how did you choose to do that? And how many cases did you need? And and then when you came home, did you have to have a certain number of cases lined up again? Yeah. So yes. Yeah, so for those listening who do want to kind of train in robotic surgery, so Intuitive Surgery has a really good online community system. So the, the website is davincisurgerycommunity.com. Anyone can register and you can start doing the online modules. And the online modules are really helpful just to know how the robot works, you know, how the arms work, the pedals work. So it's a really good, so we started doing the modules. Once the modules are done, um, and we, you have a robot, you need to have a robot. The robot comes with a robotic simulator. You've probably all seen it where you're playing all the little games mm -hmm. and putting numbers and letters into boxes. And you need to log 50 hours on the simulator. So we all had a logbook and we make sure we hit our, our 50 hours. And it really works. I mean, you get really quick with the pedals and with the master controllers, etc. And then once you've logged your 50 hours, um, Intuitive will organize uh, a team trip for us, for the scrub nurses, for the anaesthetist, to the ERCAD in Strasbourg. Mm -hmm. So we spent three days there, twice actually on two occasions, um, operating on, on pigs and doing various procedures and learning how to use everything on the various models. So that was a really good experience. And then once that training's done, um, we have a list of cases lined up, which we booked in, in one week. And we had a mentor come from, so obviously there weren't any UK mentors at the time. So we had a French mentor called Professor Fourcade from Limoges, who was mm -hmm. amazing and very patient. You can imagine three female pediatric urologists embarking on robotic surgery for the first time. All one more feisty than the other, but he was amazing. <laughs> He was amazing with us, and we just operated and operated for the whole week. I mean, we did pyeloplasty, heminephrectomies, uh, bilateral re-implants, we did like anything on the book. Um, and he was happy with us, and, and since then we've done all our cases either together, or in, it's either in twos or threes. We always sit together because we bounce off each other. Brilliant, yeah. Um, and the answer to your, to your kind of numbers question, we actually published our learning curve in 2019. So I just picked those figures out. 
And the regression analysis suggested that we achieved an open pyeloclasty time at 26 cases, mm -hmm. and we achieved an expert robotic time of 58 minutes by 34 cases. So essentially by 35 cases, you kind of, this is pilot, just pyeloplasty. Yes, of course, yeah. Oh, amazing. And at the moment, we're only doing pyeloplasties over two, so we haven't done any infant pyeloplasties. Yeah. But that's another limiting factor of the five millimeters, that bizarrely the eight millimeter instruments have a bit better angulation and you can use them in smaller spaces mm -hmm. and the five needs more space. So that's another reason we kind of need to upgrade our model. <laughs> that's that's such really useful information. I'm, I'm obviously gonna, I'm gonna put those uh, citations that you've mentioned into the show notes here as well, but look, I, I guess I just wanted to finish off by just saying thank you so much for, for taking the time out of your, your busy schedule to chat with me and, and um, I hope we can do this again and maybe we can we, we you know we can do this together and interview others and I, I think it's 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 been a really certainly for me a really illuminating talk so thank you so much Mary Claire no worries my pleasure thank you